This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Brene Brown. She's a research professor at the University of Houston Graduate School of Social Work. I spoke with her on November 1st, 2012, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of public radio station KUHF in Houston, Texas. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Morning. Hi, Brene. Hi, it's Krista. Hi, Krista. It's, I'm so glad we got to meet in person before I doing this. I am too. I am too. And I feel like we've been talking on Twitter already here for a couple of hours. I do too. <laughs> um, so I know I understand that you. There was some confusion about the time, so we'll try to go like 75 minutes. It's just that I, you know, it's kind of a luxury that I get to have a real uh, conversation that can be nonlinear and and wander in interesting ways but but I we, love that okay, so but much we'll, I understand you need to get out so we'll try to I we won't we'll try to not to go the whole 90 minutes well, I can actually do the whole 90 minutes I was because I just need to be right off at noon and I'm going to take my conference call here from the KUHF oh, okay. station. Okay. Um, I think there was just some discrepancy. I thought the start time was um, 1030, but they were when I got here, they said they thought it went from 11 to 1230. Oh, oh I see. Okay. All right. So we're we're on track. We're on track. All right. Good. <laughs> good. Well, I'm, I'm very excited. So, Chris, are, are we okay? Yeah. And we're on. Uh, you've probably done ISDN before, which is very intimate. And a phone line is a little bit less so. But this feels okay to me. Does it feel all right? Yeah, yeah. it feels. Yeah, it does feel a little bit different. Yeah. Um, but it feels fine. It feels okay. great. All right. Um, so, you know, I, I've been kind of steeped in you for the last few days. And um and I thought I might start by mentioning uh, one of the articles about you in the Telegraph, the UK, um, that started out, Brene Brown is a shame and vulnerability expert. I know. That was my reaction, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not hardwired for this stuff, but bear with me. <laughs> and you often make the point that uh, as a fifth-generation Texan, you would not have believed that you'd be hard- hardwired for this stuff either. No, true. <laughs> Where, where did you grow up? I Well, I was born in San Antonio and um, raised in Houston primarily, but also okay. spent a lot of years in San Antonio as well. Okay. Um, so I, I, I want to ask you if you think about, um, and I haven't seen you reflecting in this way in any of your writing, but maybe you've thought a lot about it, um, your earliest associations with the notion of shame as you understand it now, or vulnerability as you understand it now, or even as you understood it then. I mean, you know, if you, I know that this all became surprising to you, but if you trace the roots back to how you grappled with this, you know, where do you see the beginnings of it, healthy or unhealthy? I think, it's, wow, it's, um, I think I was always maybe as most of us acutely aware of shame. I mean, I knew the feeling. I knew when it happened to me. I knew when I was in it. Um, I knew that it was something we didn't talk about. And so mm-hmm. I think I grew up maybe with a third eye for it. I mean, I think I was aware of it. I think I could see it in other people. Um, and I don't – I didn't know what it was until – probably the early 90s when I was working in a residential treatment facility with adolescent girls and boys who'd been removed, 
you know, parental rights had been permanently severed and they were, Mm -hmm. you know, growing up in this treatment center in the Texas Hill Country. And we had a really difficult experience where one of the girls um, tried to hurt herself and another one of the girls tried to run away in the same night when that was both of those were very rare. And so kind of the entire facility went on what we call lockdown. And so it was it was a very tense, very anxious time. And I guess without knowing what was happening, those of us who were kind of in direct relationship with the kids really changed our behaviors. And so the clinical director pulled us all together and said, I've really been watching you over the last 24 hours. I know things are anxious. I know you're you're fearful right now about what's happening, but you can't shame people into changing their behaviors. Hmm. And it was just kind of the sentence that launched my career probably because I thought, what? <laughs> yeah, you can. Um, and so I actually made an appointment with him and talked to him about a couple of weeks later. And we, you know, I said, are you sure, you know, about that? And he said, no. I said, he said, the problem is that you can turn a child's behavior on a dime with shame. But you really can't facilitate meaningful, lasting change mm-hmm. by shaming someone. It's just short term if it yeah. works, if it looks like it works. Right. And now I know why, uh-huh. you know, because I think for children, you know, shame is the threat of being unlovable. Um, and that really gets down into our survival stuff. So, um, And is it right that your mother was alcoholic or was in recovery? No. No. Okay. But no. you say that you... you but my grandmother was, my okay. grandmother. And then you say that as you got older, you became a... You've described yourself as a take-the-edge-off-aholic. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it was so funny. Like I quit drinking and smoking um you know, cigarettes the day after I finished my master's degree in social work. Um and it was really funny cuz you know, I was very I, I I don't think I knew about kind of the addiction in my family until I did a genogram, which is Really? Yeah, and which is kind of where you do this big family map. Yeah. And there's different symbols for different things, you know, who's married to who, divorced, dead. And I remember, you know, talking to my mom about, you know, well, where is this and what happened here? And I thought, oh, my God, there's a lot of addiction in our family. And, she, you know, and I didn't grow up around an immediate in my immediate family. So I, I didn't really see it or understand it. And so I think that kind of scared the bejesus out of me. And I had a propensity to be kind of a wild party girl. And so <laughs> I thought... This is no good. All right. And so, you know, I, and so I went to like, I remember going to an A, my first AA meeting and I found a sponsor because that's, that's the rules and I'm a rule follower. And I remember her saying, I, I'm not sure that you really belong here. And so then I tried to do like a codependent meeting. I tried a couple different meetings. And then finally I found a sponsor who said, I don't know what you have. I'm going to call it the poo-poo platter of addictions, <laughs> a little bit of everything. And so I was like, what does that mean? And so it wasn't until I started really studying vulnerability a decade later, I was like, oh, I just don't like to feel uncertain and mm. vulnerable and afraid. So, mm. yeah. So <clears throat> it's interesting to me that you, 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 you got into the research wing of social work, which I'm not really sure I knew existed. You know, we hear about the practice wing of social work. Right. Um, and you, and you got... You came to shame, and tell me if this is right, because you started asking people about relationship and human connection, and they told you about heartbreak. True. (laughs) True. That's so human, I think, of us. I mean, I think 
we often, I mean, you know, because we're meaning making, you know, we're meaning making machines as people. I think a lot of times we make meaning by, I think we understand our experiences by what hasn't happened sometimes or we, hmm. you know, and so it wasn't surprising to me. I mean, it was a little bit surprising, but it made sense to me. And as I thought about it, I probably would have done the same thing. So when I am a qualitative researcher, I'm a grounded theory researcher. And so when I sat down and said, you know, in grounded theory is we don't start from existing literature or theories. We build theories from people's lived experiences, and then we position them within the academic literature. Okay. Where does it fit? Where does it not fit? And so the idea is to sit across from people with very open questions. It's almost like it's almost like clinical work, you know, very much tell me about the relationships, the most important relationships in your life. Okay. And then people very quickly got to heartbreak and betrayal and loss. Um, because I think we know how to language that better than we know how to language intimacy and trust and vulnerability and mutuality. Right. And so can I just say the word shame is hard for me, you know? Yeah. Like as I as I was reading you and um especially in the beginning, I was thinking, you know, I get what you're talking about, but I don't identify with the word shame. Yeah. Um and then I wondered if maybe the fact that I'm so uncomfortable with it is is part of what you're describing. I mean, I think I think that is I don't know about, you know, for you personally, I don't know, but I think that is often very often the case. I mean, I sometimes say that when I use the word shame, people have one of two responses. I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't have anything to do with me mm-hmm. or I know exactly what you're talking about and I don't want to discuss it with you. Right. Well, to me, it has this connotation of sh- ashamed of something. Right. But you're talking about something that is actually at a la- layer below. I mean, that can be part of it, but that's not doesn't capture it, does it? No, I'm really talking about that kind of warm wash that we experience of not good enough. Um, you know, I always say, you know, shame drives two primary tapes, you know, not good enough and who do you think you are? And so to me, you know, it's really hard to talk about shame for this reason. You know, when I do lectures or when I do, you know, when I talk to people, um, when I teach, because the quagmire that I always find myself in is if you really want to, if you really want people to get a gig at their hearts, around shame. You can share something shaming or you can ask them, you can, you know, talk about shame in a way where they experience it. But when you do that, you lose people cognitively immediately. Mm-hmm. And if you just talk right. to people about it cognitively, then they're kind of like, I'm not sure I have that experience or I'm not sure I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So it's it's a very formidable emotion. Um, it's It's... Its survival is based on us not talking about it, so it's done everything it can do to make it unspeakable. So what did you say? Not good enough or? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? So those things I totally agree with, right? Like both of them. Yeah. I I live those things. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, uh, thankfully, I live them a little differently at 50 than I did at 20. Oh, um, God, me too. But they're totally there. But are you saying that shame is... This feeling and and attendant feelings of fear and defensiveness that that this is this is shame is what these these experiences plant in us and then that that shame motivates us even if we don't 
understand what's happening? Oh, I think absolutely. I think, you know, I think shame is one of the most primitive human emotions we experience. Um, And I think there's, you know, 50 years of pretty solid data um, that really points to the, the fact that the only that we all experience shame and the only people who don't really experience shame are people who have no capacity for connection. Mm. Um, so in that sense, it's it's a seed of health right? or, or in some way. Yeah. I mean, it is. Or a shadow side of health. Yeah, it is a shadow side of uh, of of that. I, I agree 100 percent because I think if you back up a little bit further and talk about connection, that, we, you know, we are hardwired um, physically neurobiologically, emotionally, I would argue spiritually, hardwired for connection. And so as long as connection is that important in our lives, the fear of disconnection and Mm -hmm. the pain of disconnection Mm -hmm. will always be real. Got it. You know, the pain, the, the, the idea that we've done something that has made us unworthy of love and belonging. Um. Which is primarily, you know, which is really the simplest definition of shame is this this intensely painful feeling that we're unworthy of love and belonging, that we've done something or failed to do something that makes us, you know, connectable. And it's it's so fascinating to dig into your work because what you uncover, although each of us has our very distinct story about how that got planted in us. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, endless variations on the theme. Um, it it seems like it's almost a, a universal experience, even if people grow beyond it. I mean, is it possible to grow up without shame, or is it something? Is it like some part of the human struggle that we all face? I think it's part of the human struggle, and I think you know. There are certainly endless variations on the stories, but there are such strong patterns. I mean, it's, you know, you know, as a qualitative researcher, that's my entire, you know, professional endeavor is finding patterns and themes in mm-hmm. people's experiences. And I think, you know, I don't think you can grow up without shame. I mean, I think certainly there are people who have it. You know, it's one of the things that's interesting is we can measure shame proneness in folks using an instrument called the Tosca. And what it tells us is it tells us the difference between, you know, how shame prone are you or how guilt prone are you? In other words, how likely is it that if you make a big mistake at work, how likely is it that your the, your self-talk is, God, I'm an idiot. I'm so stupid. Um, or that, which is shame, okay. you know, a, a, a focus on self or are you more guilt prone? Would you say, God, I made a mistake. That was a dumb thing to do. Would you focus on the behavior and not who you are? Okay. And so I think that we all grow up with some degree of shame. And I think what's interesting is, you know, in the, dif- the, re- the I think the reason why the difference between shame and guilt is so important is because shame is so highly correlated with addiction, depression, suicide, aggression, violence, bullying, um, and guilt is inversely correlated with those outcomes. Hmm. And so what I think when you ask about, you know, can you be raised without shame, you know, unfortunately, one of the strongest predictor variables of proneness is parenting style. Yeah. 
And so I do that think, makes sense. <laughs> you know, it does make sense. You know, as it turns out, there's a pretty tremendous difference between, you know, you're a great kid, you made a bad choice, and you're a bad kid. Mm-hmm. But I, so I think that we, you know, I think certainly as, you know, as parents, we can make a very important effort to not use shame as a parenting tool, as educators to not use shame as a classroom management tool. But I think as clergy, <laughs> to not use shame as a yeah. tool in, you know, in yeah. churches and synagogues, temples. Um, but I think that the culture today, perfectionism, consumption is so pervasive that I think those messages of worthlessness creep in just by virtue of being a part of the culture. So I think it's – I don't think – I've never I've never met anyone in 12 years. Who didn't have some little inkling of this. Yeah, that didn't have something. Okay. Well, so that, that that's a bit of a comfort that we're not alone in this. Nope. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You see the, the bright side. No. And you know, one of the ways it interestingly shows up very often that people don't get the connection is perfectionism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you say, that's what that's what our culture and often we as parents mirror. Um, I love there's a there's a line that I think it's disputed who said this, but uh Sherwin Newland, the physician, quoted it to me. Uh, and supposedly it came from Philo. Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. I love that quote. And, you know, I think about that at regular intervals. And, you know, I, I think about it in terms of myself and, like, kind of forgive myself. And I think of it in – I mean, it's so true. And it's it's a way to describe what you're talking about. It's so – I have goosebumps right now. I know. No, because, I mean, really the hairs on my arm are standing up. Yeah. It's a quote that we use a lot in our house. Oh, is it? And and you're right. And if you think about what the cultural message is, it's you can do anything. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> Achieve your potential. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I use it even like when I have a 13-year-old daughter who's kind of navigating some of the mean girl stuff right now. Yeah. And I even use that quote, you know, sometimes as a parent, I know more about what's going on in the households of some of the kids who are struggling than my daughter does. But, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, be kind. Yeah. Just you don't know what kind of battle people are engaged in in their lives. Yeah, I've actually shared that with my daughter, too. And you're right. It, you know, it's 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 a good it's a good Pete's thing to share. Um, so, so vulnerability is uh, this other word you use a lot that is just that our culture is almost allergic to. <laughs> and I, I think it's really interesting how you, your work on vulnerability came out of your attempt to kind of put this, <clears throat> this shame learning into a positive context, right? To figure out what were the ingredients. Um, of the lives that you saw as wholehearted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you, you, you know, and you, and you say that you started with an assumption that people who, who were able to live in wholeheartedly were acting out of a place of knowing their worthiness. Right. Um, but then you started to see it differently. It kind of shape-shifted. And I wonder if you would tell the story of this epiphany that you had and and you date it November 2006 <laughs> 
You know, it's so funny because I still have that painted red wood kitchen table um, where everything amazing has happened in my life and everything hard seems to have happened in my life too. And I actually was running out of the house this morning um, and looked at it and thought about that that moment this morning. You know, for me, because I had spent the first six years really trying to understand the anatomy of shame and understand scarcity and fear and this struggle with worthiness, um, it wasn't until, you know, I'd really kind of put a theory together about what shame is and how it worked that I thought, oh, man, I have all this data and I've interviewed so many people who are just, you know, they're they're like me and they're like a lot of the people I know. You know, they're, you know, they struggle. They're trying their best, but their lives seem so different than mine. They they really seem to engage with the world from this place of worthiness. They They, you know, they say, yeah, I'm screwing things up and I'm imperfect and I'm afraid, but... I'm still worthy of love and belonging. Like their love and belonging wasn't on the table. It wasn't negotiable. Right. And so I sent my husband and my kids to um, – they went to my in-laws for the weekend in San Antonio and I stayed and pulled out all, a bunch of data and kind of spread everything across the house. And one of the things that's interesting I think about grounded theory is we still – we don't use software to code data. We still code all of the data manually. Mm-hmm. And so I have you – know, Because it's stories and words. Because it's stories. Yeah. And, you know – It's not just numbers. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and it's interesting because Barney Glazer, one of the people who developed the, the methodology, studied a form of understanding – I think it was – Oh. Are we oh, there? Oh. Yeah, I am. Are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Okay. We're okay. I ducked, but I'm here. Good. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, he studied this thing called explication to text and at the Sorbonne, I think, in the 30s. And so he, he really just believes that when people tell stories, every word matters, every phrase matters, and you have to get in. I always think of it like making meatloaf. you got to get mm-hmm. your hands in it. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at everything, and I start thinking, you know, what I'm looking for are these kind of very wholehearted people. Um, and the word actually came to me because I go to an Episcopal church and in one of our prayers, there's a phrase that, you know, I have not loved you with my whole heart. Mm-hmm. And I keep thinking, these are people who are really loving with their whole heart. Like, even if they're getting hurt, they're still loving with their whole heart. Right. So I started coding data and looking for patterns and themes and words. And they started you know, they started emerging very quickly. And I just started to put together lists like here's here are the things that wholehearted men and women really consciously choose and here are the things that they push away from and try to move away from. And here are the you know, and so I ended up with two lists and you know, I called one the, you know, the bad you know, the kind of the the bad list and the this is what the wholehearted list. And I and I was so in such a like a little kind of a coding trance that I wasn't paying attention. And I think I finally sat down at the kitchen table and put these two huge poster-sized Post-it notes up with all these words. And I just remember looking up and looking at the kind of do not do list, and it just described my entire life. <laughs> I was like, oh, Jesus. I'm like, I'm on the wrong list. So what was on it? Well, let me just ask you this before that. Yeah. So did you think that you were going to find that these people had better parented or had less trauma or had better support systems? I mean, did, what did you think? Oh, I I had a lot of self-righteousness about that. A little. I think I thought, well, these people, you know, 
the people who believe in their worthiness, their lives probably panned out extremely well. Better. Yeah. Yeah. Like You're these right. are the people who they were dealt a better hand of cards. They were. Their nail you. polish yeah. doesn't chip. No stretch marks. No struggles. Yeah. You know. <laughs> but but there wasn't the case. There wasn't. You know, there weren't fewer divorces or bankruptcies or history of trauma or addiction. I mean, they were. You know, they were just like the general population in the in terms of those variables. They were just like everyone else. Um, so what was on the list that described you? <laughs> <laughs> um, perfectionism, judgment, exhaustion as a status symbol, mm. productivity as self-worth, cool, what do people think, performing, proving... <laughs> Quest for certainty. <laughs> Such yeah. a pretty picture. Yeah. Um, yeah. And on the other side, you know, on the other side were things that I had really strong emotional reactions to. Like the one that the first one that I saw that just, oh, just pissed me off, really. I mean, I just can't think of another way to say it. I just was so mad was creativity. Okay. Came up. Creativity was not correlated with perfectionism or productivity. No. no. Yeah. Creativity was on the other side. And, you know, and I think before before this, you know, I was one of those people who if someone said, you know, hey, do you want to, you know, take this painting class with me or do you want a scrapbook or do you want to, you know, I was like, oh, that's really cute. Um, <laughs> you know, you do your ART. I've got a J-O-B. Um <laughs> And I think I had a feeling that unless you're doing that to make a living or that's, you know, part of your job description, that that kind of stuff was self-indulgent mm-hmm. and flaky a little bit. And so I just, yeah, I had – and, you know, and it's so funny because as a shame researcher, my lens – on this was very different. My lens was not just like, oh, okay, so we should be more creative and we should incorporate more rest and play into our lives. And my question was like, okay, so I get rest is important and play and creativity and all these things that make me super uncomfortable. But what are the shame triggers that get in the way of us doing these things? Like I wasn't satisfied with just knowing what we were supposed to do. I wanted to know what is it that the wholehearted if they were just like us, what did they have to overcome in order to soften into some of these things? Hmm. And so like with creativity, the primary shame trigger around that is comparison. So that when you get into comparison, comparison, you're not, you're not going to be able to go there. You're not going to be able to soften into creativity. No, it just kills creativity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I see that, you know, as in, you know, after this, this started to emerge and I started writing this up, I went into the literature and I just found just profound evidence of this. Like one of the things that was heartbreaking for me as a parent is we see that around fourth and fifth grade, a lot of people who – researchers who study creativity call it the creativity slump. Mm -hmm. And I saw it in my own children that, you know, in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, they'd come home and like, you know, look at my horse that I drew in class and isn't it incredible and it's got four heads and it's got blue polka dots. (laughs) And, you know, but then by fifth grade, what I saw in my daughter was – Man, you know, Susie and Mark are such great artists. Their horses look really real. I'm not very I'm not very creative. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think for every one of these choices that leads to wholeheartedness, 
there is real shame work to be done about how we get there. Oh. I mean, how can we embrace rest and play if we've tied our self-worth to what we produce? And <clears throat> was vulnerability the way you use the word now? Um, and, you know, we need to talk about what that means for you. Was this just kind of an underlying quality of these lives? Yeah. Of wholeheartedness? Absolutely. Creativity, play, rest? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, these were folks who, you know, they show up in their lives without a lot of guarantees. I remember sitting at that table a couple days later when kind of making the decision that I was going to put the data away and get a therapist. (laughs) Um, And I did. Um, But I remember thinking, does this mean that our capacity for wholeheartedness can never be greater than our willingness to be brokenhearted? Mm. I mean, Mm. is is that what I'm seeing? Mm. Because I hate that. Yeah. I mean, here's a statement you make. Vulnerability is the core, the heart, the center of meaningful human experience. So explain that sentence to me. Vulnerability, I think, you know, I define it as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. When, when I asked people, what is vulnerability? And I still do this. Um, and a lot of times when I speak to really big groups, I, I, I have them write this answer on a post-it note and I collect them all and we put them, you know, we write them all down and look at them over and over again. When I asked people, what is vulnerability? The answers were things like sitting with my wife who has stage three breast cancer and trying to make plans for our children. My first date after my divorce. Oh, God. Saying I love you first. Asking for a raise. You know, sending my child to school, you know, being enthusiastic and supportive of him and knowing how excited he is about orchestra tryouts and how much he wants to make first chair and encouraging him and supporting him and knowing that's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, to me... Vulnerability is courage. It's about the willingness to show up and be seen in our lives. And in those moments when we show up, I think those are the most powerful meaning-making moments of our lives, even if they don't go well. Mm -hmm. I think they define who we are. And, you know... It's easy to associate a word like vulnerability with a word like gullibility mm-hmm. or even like as a parent, like, dan- you know, associated with is that dangerous, right? Oh, for sure. So so how do you make that distinction? Because that's not really what you're talking about or it's not a necessary implication. Well, I think it's part of, you know, I love that you said we're allergic to vulnerability. I think it's a part of the allergy. Uh-huh. I think it is part of the vulnerability's weakness. It's gullibility. It's being naive. Getting taken advantage of, Absolutely. getting hurt. Yeah. Right. But to separate that from the reality of vulnerability, I just – I always ask a very simple question to people. I just say, think of the last time you did something that you thought was really brave. 
And when people or the last time you saw someone do something really brave, you know, I think without question, you know, and I can tell you as a researcher, 11,000 pieces of data, I've never, I cannot find a single example of courage, moral courage, spiritual courage, leadership courage, relational courage in my, I cannot find a single example of courage in my research that was not born completely of vulnerability. And so I think we buy into some mythology about vulnerability being weakness and being gullibility and being frailty because it gives us permission not to do it. Right. Um, and, and one point you make also is, I, I think this is really important for me to hear, it's these people who live vulnerably in this healthy way don't find it comfortable, right? I mean, there's some place you say that part of it is Oh, the part of the way to become this way is to practice being uncomfortable. Right. So there's nothing, there's nothing flowery about this. You're not saying, oh, it's fun. You'll get to like it. And you're not saying it won't go, it will go well all the time. No, it doesn't. I speak from experience. You know, I think one of the things that happened for me, um, I did you know, I did this TEDx Houston talk in June of 2010, and then in December of 2010, they the talk was chosen to be on the main TED website, and it went viral very quickly. And one of the things that happened during that experience for me, it was completely, it was it was the most intense vulnerability I've ever experienced in my in my professional life. And it's like six million views for the TEDx talk now, and. Right, and over that, a million for the other the other one, and that thing was an experiment. Uh huh. Like I never had. And if if someone would have told me that was going to happen, I would have never said the things I said. <laughs> because I never, I was so vulnerable during that talk, right. and my experiment was: let me just try being vulnerable while talking about vulnerability. Let me see what that's like. Yeah. Um, and so I was kind of hoisted into it, um, you know, or thrown into it, and so. One of the things for me that happened in the midst of that is I realized that I had I was very unconsciously while I was really always trying to get my work out and talk about my work and I was excited about my work, I had really engineered my life to stay small. I I worked very hard to get my work out as 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 widely as I could without too without getting too big. And listening too much criticism. I mean, I was so afraid of the criticism and so afraid of the hard, negative, terrible stuff that happens in our culture today. You know, the anonymous comments and the just the, the crappy stuff. Right. And you were taking risks in your profession, right? I mean, you were blazing some new territory. I was trying. Right. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. very much like you, I think. Um, trying to hold space for a new conversation. Mm-hmm. And so... I really got – it was really painful. There were parts of it that were very hard for me and that I felt very unprepared for. But I think – you know, that's why I think in somewhere I write something about, you know, I'm a big Leonard Cohen fan. And there's, you know, mm. the hallelujah lyric that says, love is not a victory march. It's a cold and broken hallelujah. Mm. And when I came across that lyric very – you know, in kind of probably last year right after the TED stuff, um, I thought – yeah, vulnerability is not a victory march either. <laughs> it is it can be it can feel like a cold and broken hallelujah. It is I did it, especially if it doesn't work out well. I did it. 
I got blasted. It was so hard, but I did it. But, you know, the other lesson in that is success is not a victory march, right? No. Because, because you are talking about what for you may have been the thing that you led in most, which was the criticism and the hard side of vulnerability. And a lot of people would look at that phenomenon and see the six million views, right? And only see that as an unqualified success. Right. But I think if you define it's a it's a very interesting premise here that that you're 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 talking about because a lot of people do define success as a strictly positive experience. Yeah. Or they imagine that it would be. They right? imagine they're striving that it would be. for that right. moment when it's just right. positive. Right. Yeah. And so I think vulnerability has, you know, and I think you know, gritty and tenacious is kind of in my DNA. It's kind of who I am. And and I am very hard-headed about some things. And I think being vulnerable has made me a lot stronger and a lot tougher. Hmm. Um, because when I reflect back on times where I've shown up and, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, I use the Theodore Roosevelt quote for book titles, and I use it as kind of the arc to talk about vulnerability, this idea of daring greatly, um, is because I think there's something incredibly brave and daring about showing up and putting your idea. I don't care if you're raising your hand at a PTO meeting, if you're putting your pottery on Etsy, I don't, you know, whatever Mm. your, whatever your daring is, whatever you're tr- however you're trying to show up in your life. Um, I think there's something incredibly contagious and powerful about it. I think it makes the people around us a little bit braver. And I think it helps us get very clear on the ideals and values that guide our lives. Well, right. And how that's making sense to me as I, as I hear you now is uh... – you know, going back to what you described as kind of the default shame place in us, which is not good enough. Um, why do I forget the other one, which is so familiar to me too? What was the other one? Who do you think you Who are? Who do you think you are? Yeah, okay, yeah, that one. Um, but this is about, or or also between the difference between shame and guilt, right? Which is so. So if you do something and you think my life, my identity is on on the line here, right? Like if it fails, I'm mm-hmm. bad. The difference between that or being vulnerable. And 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 that well, the only thing that's at stake is it, it could fail. It could fail, but not that you are nothing. That's I mean, mm. that's the whole heart of it. That's the whole heart of it mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And that's very hard. And it's really hard. And and you can't have it both ways. Right. Right. <laughs> Which I want it both ways. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense to me too. Just FYI. Yeah. When it's really great and supported and successful, I want it to be about me. Right. And when it sucks, I want it to be about the work. Right. So I haven't figured that out yet. Yeah. So something that I think is really important also that you've gotten into is the difference between men and women in this. And the way women do shame and perfectionism and vulnerability and the way men do it. And I want you to tell the story about the man in the yellow golf jacket. Mm. 
Okay. So when I started researching shame, I only studied women. And I did that for a couple of reasons. The first, selfish, I wanted to know, you know, that was my interest because that was my experience. Um, and because there was a there's, there was a lot of argument in the academic literature about men and women are different, that we don't experience shame the same way, you know, um, women have more, men have more, you know, there's a, a lot of debate. So I thought, let me keep it really clean and just study women. And so it also kind of feels like a word that women would say more. Like, even if I said I didn't like the word, it feels like a word that it's hard to imagine men talking about. Totally. I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. No, and I bad, came up. But... You no, know, it's true. But I, I also came up under a pretty, you know, pretty rigorous feminist academic upbringing. Yeah. You know, and so in my studies, and so I was really interested because you know you think about shame in women, you think about media, body image, you think yeah. about yeah. So it made sense to me. So I was at a book signing, and a couple came up to me, and I signed four books for the woman, and she grabbed them, and she's walked away from the table, and. Her husband, who was standing with her, stayed, and she said, "Come on, babe, let's go." And he said, "No, I want to talk to her for a minute." And you know, meaning me, and he, she said, "No, come on, let's go. We're you know, let's go." And he said, "I'm going to talk to her for a second. And it was there was some tension in that conversation. And you know, I was thinking, "Oh my God, you need to go. Like, I don't know why you want to stay. <laughs> go with your wife. <laughs> yeah, go because you're hell bent for leather to talk to me, and I'd rather you not." Yeah. Um, so she walks away and he, you know, he finally just says, I'll meet you in the back of the room. I'm staying. And it was kind of like, you know, he threw down the gauntlet. And so I looked at yeah. him and I said, hello, you know, how are you? And he Did said, no, I really like everything hello? that you said. I really like this okay. idea of, you know, reaching out and telling our stories and showing up in our lives and. You know, but you didn't talk a lot well, about men. I'm curious we about that. And, and you know, I, I kind of felt this wave of instant relief. You know, I said, oh, yeah, I don't study men. And he said, that's convenient. And I thought, oh, God. Um, and he said, because when we reach out and tell our stories, we get the emotional shit beat out of us. And God, you could just see pain on his face. And he said, we have shame. We have deep shame, but we can't talk about it. And I was just getting ready to respond. And he said, whoa, whoa, before you say anything about those fathers and those coaches and those friends and brothers and all those mean folks that we're you know, up against growing up, my wife and three daughters, the ones you just signed the books for, had rather me die on top of my white horse than have to watch me fall off. And then he just walked away. And I knew... That was truth. And I knew that it was going to get really complicated very quickly. As I started, you know, I knew I had to look at men. I had to talk to them about their experiences. And I knew that I would uncover some really painful, hard things about probably myself and women in general that I didn't want to uncover. And that's kind of where it began. Uh, go ahead and redial the seven one three four four zero number I gave you. It should work. Okay, here we go. Just a moment. Got you. I'm going to put you on the board again. 
speak to her and see if we got communication. Hi. Okay. Oh no. I I think that the engineer in me thinks that that line is. What happened? The line dropped. Hello? Uh, let me try something just a moment. I'm going to actually drop this line. Yeah, I'll try it again as you will, please. Hello? 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 Oh, hi, are you back? Oh, sorry about that. Um, the good thing is we were, you were just going to tell a story, that, and we know exactly where we were. Hellbent for leather. Hellbent for leather, Chris says. Okay. So he, he, he wants to talk to you. She goes away, and... <laughs> so she goes away, and he stays. Is that where we are? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he stays and he said, I really, I really liked everything you said. I really like this idea of, you know, reaching out and telling our stories and showing up, but you didn't mention men. And, you know, my initial thought was, oh gosh, thank God. And, you know, this is going to wrap up quick because I don't, you know, and so I looked at him <laughs> and I said, I don't study men. And he said, well, that's convenient. And my heart just, just. I was like, oh, God. Mm. And he said, because we have shame. We have deep shame. But when we reach out and tell our stories, when we show up, we get the emotional shit beat out of us. Mm. And I was just getting ready to respond. And he said, and before you say anything about those mean fathers and those coaches and those brothers and those bully friends, my wife and three daughters, the ones who you just signed the book for, the books for, they had rather see me die on top of my white horse than have to watch me fall off. And then he just walked away. And in that moment, you know, when truth hits you, it just hits you and you know, you know what it is the second it, you know, it comes to you. I knew that my research was going to be profoundly changed and I knew that it was going to be difficult and painful and that I was going to learn things about myself that I probably didn't want to know. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, I think you learn things also that women growing up now and feminist and post-feminist women, I mean, it's, it's like a reckoning. It felt like a reckoning. And it felt like a reckoning for years doing this, re talking to men about their experiences. I mean, so how would you summarize? So, so I guess, the, you know, the point you make is that 
these we talked about these experiences as universal human experience, and the resistance to vulnerability is probably universal, but it manifests so differently in men than in women. It does. I mean, I think, you know, shame is a universal human experience, like you say. If it washes over me, it's going to be the same as it washes over, you know, my husband, Steve. But the messages and expectations that fuel shame, the one, the, the messages and expectations that bring us to our knees are so organized by gender. Hmm. You know, for women, it's really about do it all, do it perfectly, and make sure you make it look effortless. Right. Um, and it's also about how we look, right? I mean, part oh, yeah. of that is, and look great while you're doing it, yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. no, no question. I mean, that's yeah. the part that better look effortless. Yeah. You know, um, you know and, and appearance and body image is still the number one shame trigger for women. Um, for men, I want to just tell you this before, before you get into this serious tell thing. I was, I was, I was on Twitter yesterday. There was a thing from the onion that someone had sent around. I almost sent you, which said sensitive science, science, uh, 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 demonstrate that five out of five women underestimate their own beauty. <laughs> Isn't that good? That's true. I know. It's true. And it's painful. Like, it's Yeah. Anyway, okay. So no, yeah, that's true. Because appearance and body image are still the, the big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, for men, you know, for, so for women, it's a lot of competing and conflicting expectations. Um, do it all, but don't let them see you sweat. Be perfect. Make it look effortless. Mm-hmm. Take care of everyone else, but make sure you show up like you've put yourself first. You know, it's just, it's, it's impossible. Um, for men, there's a really kind of singular suffocating expectation, and that is do not be perceived as weak. Mm-hmm. And so for men, the perception of weakness is often very shaming, and that one of the things that's interesting is as I talk to men, you know, what I heard over and over was some variation of, look, you know, my wife, my girlfriend, whomever. They say, be afraid. They say, tell me, you know, share your vulnerability with me. Open up. Let me see you. But the truth is they can't stomach it. Mm-hmm. The truth is that when I'm very vulnerable, when I'm in fear, when I talk about it openly, it is permanently changes the dynamics in our relationship. Mm. And when I started sharing this with women or when I started interviewing couples, you know, women are like, oh, God, it's true. Yeah. I want you to be open and I want there to be intimacy, but I don't want you to go there. <laughs> you know, and so I, I've come to this belief that if you show me a woman who can sit with a man in real vulnerability, in deep fear, and be with him in it, I will show you a woman who A, has done her work, and B, does not derive her power from that man. Right. And that gets at some of the roots of this, doesn't it? Which it does. I mean, so it's, it's the bottom line. So unselfconscious about. Mm-hmm. And if you show me a man who can sit with a woman in deep struggle and vulnerability and not try to fix it, but just hear her and be with her and hold space for it. I'll show you a guy who's done his work and a man who doesn't derive his power from controlling and fixing everything. Hmm. That's really important, really 
it's jarring, right? It's like we have yes. to, we need to just say that a lot and sit with it. It's so jarring. Mm-hmm. It's so jarring. And I think, you know, it was jarring for me because I remember driving home after doing uh, a focus group with with men and really starting to get clear on why it's so hard for so many women to hold space for vulnerability in men. And why still today I have graduate students who say, "Uh uh-uh, that's gross. (laughs) I don't want a boyfriend who does that. I don't want a husband who does that. Mm. Um, I I remember driving home and having this moment where I was like, oh, my God, I am the patriarchy. Like, Mm. I'm – facilitating this. I'm participating in this. Mm. Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's and, and then that was painful. But then when you drop down even deeper into it and you think, well, I'm uncomfortable with your vulnerability when I derive my power from your status or from you, mm-hmm. then that just gets so uncomfortable that it's like that, 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 that's there's such a deep truth for me in that. Yeah. That I think it's it's just a conversation that's way overdue, I think. It sure is, yeah. I want to talk about parenting, um, which, boy, for those of us who are parents, is just where the rubber meets the road on this in some ways, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's the work we do in ourselves, and there's the way we're present to our kids. And as you point out, the two are, it's the same thing. <laughs> right. Um. You know, when a joke I've made across the years about parenting is, it, it, I mean, there's so many joys about it, but but it's it's also this unfolding um, variety of reasons to feel guilty. It's like, um, <laughs> you know, and my daughter's in college now, and I've just found a new one, and um, so, you know, she's not living with me anymore. Um, Don't tell me that. But, <laughs> Don't want to. But you know, it's it's funny, and but it. It's and that's that. It's one of the problems is like you. I have always thought. Well, well. So let me just say it this way too. I think one of the things I was most aware of, maybe because I was studying theology at the time when I had my daughter, my first child, is that it is so not an experience of power. It is utter excruciating vulnerability, like you have never known before. You are not in control. You do not know what's going to happen next. Yeah. It, I mean, just to hear you say it takes my breath away. <laughs> it, is, it is the ultimate experience in vulnerability, I think. And no one prepares you for that. No one talks about that. No, and I think first child, first time, that, vulner- that the intensity of that vulnerability mm-hmm. is, can be crazy-making. Like, I remember looking at Ellen sitting in her little bucket seat, you know, and thinking, who has left her with me? I know. I know. Are you kidding yourself? I know. What were they thinking? Sending them home from the hospital with me. Right. I'm like, and I just remember, you know, that, that completely universal car ride home from the hospital. Yeah. Where you're like, Jesus, they're in our lane. Move over. Slow down. You know, and it's just, and it never ends. Yeah. It's, it is, it is where the rubber meets the road. But as you write so well about, and this gets back to our cultural allergy to vulnerability, what we have done with this 
primal sense of vulnerability and I think, you know, which is not a good and a bad impulse, our, our need to protect, is that we have, we've gone perfectionistic on this. We have. And that, I mean, I think we're kind of waking up to that. But you really, really point out why that is just destructive for us and for our children in a whole new way, I think. I mean, could you talk about that? Like how you see the this dynamic? It's so hard because, you know, I, I think... You know, one of the things I write about very openly is, you know, I call it the 2007, you know, breakdown slash spiritual awakening. And, yeah. and at that red kitchen table, at that red kitchen table where it all started. And then I took my syllabus to my therapist and said, you know, I need more vulnerability. Um, I have six weeks go. Um, I think the part that really pushed me kind of to getting help and wanting to live differently was what I was seeing about parenting. That this whole idea that who we are and how we engage with the world is such a far more accurate predictor of how our children will do than what we know about parenting. Right. And I think we are, you know, and I've seen this change. And I, I will, I'll, I'll start by saying I agree with you. I think we're, we're in a gentle, quiet awakening period right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. But I started my research just kind of just very coincidentally six months before 9-11. Mm-hmm. And so over the course of the last, you know, 12 years, I have seen fear absolutely run roughshod over our families. Yeah. And I have seen us go to these crazy links, links to protect ourselves and our children from the uncertainty that, ha- that the world has become. And I've not only seen that through my lens as a researcher, but certainly experienced it as a parent, but as a college professor. Mm-hmm. You know, this is my 15th year teaching. Mm-hmm. And I only teach master's and doctoral level students, but I see students come to us who have never had experiences, real experiences with adversity. Yeah. And how that shows up is hopelessness. You know, one of the most interesting things I've found in doing this work is, you know, something the wholehearted share in common is this this real profound sense of hopefulness. And as I got into the the literature on hope, um, very specifically C.R. Schneider's work um, from the University of Kansas at Lawrence, um, that hope is a function of struggle. Right. I think that's one of the most stunning sentences that I saw in your writing. Yeah, and that that hope is not an emotion, but hope is a cognitive behavioral process that we learn when we experience adversity, when we have relationships that are trustworthy, when people have faith in our ability to get out of a jam. Right, which is different from from this pattern of having faith in us, which means telling us everything we do is wonderful and shielding us from pain as long as they can. Right. And, you know, I, I I can't, I'm I'm literally speaking, I can't even know how to talk about it. It takes, Mm. it really just, it floors me that when I go out and I do a lot of talks for big corporations, you know, Fortune 100 companies, just, 
And how many people tell me, like the HR folks who I end up, luckily I love them and I get to talk to them a lot, who will tell me how often parents call to go over the performance Mm -hmm. evaluation of their children Mm. or to find out why they didn't get a raise or a promotion. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just took my daughter to college and we got this lecture, the, the parents and the families who were there from like the dean of students and it was so clear that they were dealing with that same thing right i mean they he you know he basically said i i need you to understand that we're going to take great care of your gem and also that my relationship is to them and not to you and yeah. we we got this lecture which was clearly based on um parents still trying to control and you know again it's like boy we know this don't we this desire that you have to create a beautiful world and life and experience for these people you love. But you know what? I think we lose sight of the beauty, the most beautiful things I look back on in my life are coming out from underneath things I didn't know I could get out from underneath. You know, the moments I look back um, in my life and think, God, those are the moments that made me, were moments of struggle. Yeah, or I look back at things I did where if my parents or I had understood <laughs> how crazy it was, yeah. right? Like they would have, maybe they would have, like if it had been me, I would have tried to intervene and rescue. Oh, for sure. And you're right. Those are the moments you become who you are. You know, and I've seen how this research has really changed, you know, like I'll give you just a very specific example. My um, my daughter decides, you know, that she wants to try out for something that she's really new at. You know, she's a sport or something that she's just taken up. And I think before, maybe even three years ago, before this research, not only before I wrote it up, before I started trying to practice it and live it, I think I would have been the parent who said, you know, Either let's get you in 34 camps before you try out so you've mastered it. Right. Or I don't think you should try out for that. Because yeah. there, you know, there are girls who have been playing this sport as long as you've been playing soccer. And, and you want to shield them from disappointment. Right. And I want to take away that moment that I had. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, it wasn't the moment. When I think back, and, and, and I talk to parents a lot about this, it wasn't the hard moments that we don't want to expose them to. It was the isolation and shame we felt around those moments because Mm. a lot of us didn't have people to process them with. Mm. Like I think when I went out for something and didn't make it, I think – I don't think my parents were ashamed of me, but I think they were ashamed for me. I don't think they knew how to talk about that. I don't think we had a conversation. I know we didn't have a conversation where that that I can have with my daughter today where I say, you know what? I'm so proud of you not only for trying, but for letting the people around you who you care about let you let us know how much you wanted it. Right. And it doesn't get braver than that. Right. Like huh. and I don't look back back at my parents. Like one thing I was raised with was a lot of hope. Like my parents were very much like, "Hey dad, I want to I want to, you know, I want a tree house in this tree. Well, mm-hmm. sis, draw it out. 
figure out what supplies you need. Well, mm-hmm. okay, I, I need to go to the store. You got some money? Well, no, you better sell some lemonade. You know, like, you know, right. we, we got to struggle and we got to co- figure out how to come out the other side of it. Well, I mean, here's this other sentence that's a corollary to the sentence, yeah. hope is a function of struggle. When you say you look at a baby, your newborn baby is hardwired for struggle, that we are hardwired for struggle. It is built that we, it's built in us that that is how we are going to shape that that's what we're going to encounter, that's how we're going to shape ourselves. That's actually a really hard thing to take in, you know, as a parent, especially thinking about those moments early on when you first meet this being that is going to have dominance over your life. Yeah, because I think we look and think, I can make this right. Yeah. I can do for her or him what wasn't done for me. I can protect them from the things that hurt me. Yeah. You know, and 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 I think I think we are so much more hardwired for who we are than what people than what especially parents want to believe. Yeah. And I don't think our job as parents is to make everything right and perfect and beautiful and true. I think our job is during struggle to look at our kids and say, yeah. This is hard and this is tough and you're hurt. And you're not alone. You're not alone. But you're not alone. I'm not going to fix it, but you're not alone. Right. You're not alone. And I want to make sure you understand that this doesn't change the fact that you're worthy of love and belonging. So so one thing that people have talked a lot about recently is this kind of self-esteem culture. You know, you're great. You're wonderful. Um, And I have to say, in my own childhood, and I really started thinking about this as I was thinking about interviewing you there was a lot of um, talk of unconditional love in my childhood. It was, you know, it was like this assumption out there, unconditional love, but it was completely empty, right? I mean, it was true on some level, but it, it had no substance. In fact, it was a, it, it, it translated into a total lack of attention, right? Mm-hmm. Because if it's unconditional love, right. it doesn't matter who you are or what you do. Right. So, I mean, I personally... I'm allergic to the term unconditional love. Um, but I think that that's maybe this was an extreme version, but it's it's kind of this idea, again, that has sounded good that we praise our children and and uh, support their, you know, their self-confidence. So what does your research tell you about that phenomenon? I think it goes back to the beginning that who we are is a much better predictor than how, what we know about parenting and what we say to our children. Okay. So I think it's about how we show up in our own lives and how we show up in their lives. And I think that is far more powerful. There's some interesting research about kind of this overpraising and yeah. parental guilt. That we overpraise because we feel guilty. Right. Because we work too much. Right. We take business trips. Yeah. Right. And I think – and I, I'm also a fan of Carol Dweck's work, um, mindset, the idea that you know when I do praise my children, um, I really try to make it about effort, not outcome. Okay. That's important. Yeah, that's an important distinction. And I really try to give feedback. It's really interesting. I have a feedback uh, checklist in the book that was really meant for leaders because one of the things that was so shocking to me doing the research in organizations is that the lack of feedback was the number one complaint for people leaving companies um, 
in their exit interviews. And so one of the reasons I think that happens is because the the feedback process is a very vulnerable process if it's a good process. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote this kind of checklist, like what do we need – how do we prepare to be in that kind of vulnerability and share thoughts and recommendations and ideas? But what's been very interesting is the number of people who have been tweeting me and sending me letters and emails on Facebook and every other way you can imagine saying, this is what I use with my kids. What? This feedback? This feedback checklist. Because oh. what I think is just kind of like the unconditional love sounds kind of – it's got an emptiness to you. The you're awesome. Yeah has such an imp- a huge emptiness for me. And I think it lets parents off the hook in a way that can be very detrimental to kids. So, right. So this is what's the, the dot that started to get connected for me when i thinking about this is um, it, it seems on the surface strange to make an, an association between praising and telling somebody how great they are and that you love them and shame. But it does, right? Oh, my God, yes. Because depending, especially if it's empty. If it's empty, then. Oh, then it's, then it's, you know, what? then it's, you know, it's empty. It feels like neglect. Mm-hmm. Because what my kids don't, what, what I think our children want to hear is, I really love the way you talked I mean, this is a conversation I just had to with my son. I really love the way that you talked to that waiter. I love the fact that you stopped what you were doing. You looked at him in the eyes. You said, please and thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, you were kind. You smiled. And I just wanted to stop and tell you that that's really meaningful for me. And I really appreciate it. And it you're fun to take places. Yeah. Which is substantive, which is based on right. details. Right. And... I think the other stuff that you're awesome, you're the best soccer player in the world, is not only empty. If I keep hearing that from you over and over again, what I'm going to start to do is connect how you feel about me with my performance on the soccer field. Well, also, don't you think we know it's a lie? Yeah, it's a big fat lie. (laughs) I mean, I just think... and. But that also makes – but you would never admit that because you would see that somebody was really invested in thinking you were wonderful at it, right? Right. So that would be that loneliness you talk about. Right. I thought a minute ago when you talked about creativity – this is kind of overindulgent, but we can edit. Um, I thought about how when I was in fourth grade, I wrote poetry like crazy. Like I filled notebooks Mm -hmm. starting in like first grade. And I got – way over praise like my teachers my parents they were so invested in this so that it stopped feeling like it was mine and it stopped feeling there was no joy in it and i and i just gave it up you abandoned it didn't you and i never could write i mean i never you know it rhymed right i have never been able to rhyme anything again but but that wasn't about it i mean that was about ostensibly about people supporting me, right? It's just... Yeah, but I wonder, you know, I think this is like, this is an interesting place to talk about. I wonder if it would have been different. If it would have been, if the, if the, if the common, if the commentary would have been, I love how much you love this. Yeah. 
So I have a daughter who wrote songs, poems and songs, and I hardly ever even, I mean, I told her sparingly that I thought it was great. <laughs> like, I was scared. I wanted it so much to be her thing and not to encourage her to have it be competitive or even have it be performance so that other people would judge it. It's true. I mean, it's true. And I think, you know, the best thing is, you know, when I always talk about whenever I do a parenting talk or something somewhere, I always call it the gifts of imperfect parenting. Because the thing that I think matters the most is that if I were to say to Ellen, let's say she was in, she was, you know, writing short stories and I was, I think the thing that makes it so powerful is if I sat down with her and she's 13 now, but I think I could have done this even when she was much younger if I changed the language. But at 13, I might say to her, I love how much you love writing yeah, and I love the joy it brings to you. And mm-hmm. I just sometimes just want to squeeze you and tell you how great I think it is. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to add to it or make it something that's not because mm-hmm. this was my experience growing up. So I just want you to know that I'm over here supporting you and loving that I see that you found something that's joyful for you. Right. And if you want to talk about it more, I'm here. Whatever I can do to support you, I'm here. We can have those conversations now. We can say, I don't know how to do this. Yeah. You know, and I have them pretty often with my daughter. Like when I screw something up, um, I was editing a story that she wrote last night and she was like, so are you saying that you don't think that's good? And I looked at her and I was like, I don't know how to do this. I know how to grade papers. (laughs) Yeah, right. I know how to get stuff back from my editor, which is always really bloodied. But I don't know how to do this with you. Mm Mm-hmm. And she's like, what do you mean you don't know how? And I'm like, I don't know how. This is the first time I've ever edited like a piece of fiction of yours. I don't know how to do it. Mm. And I said, what do you want and what don't you want? And she said, I want you to fix the things that make the story not good, but I don't want you to make it your story. Mm. Oh, so she's smart. She can. They can guide us. Right. If we invite them to be our right. teachers. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, because I have a really good idea for that paragraph. <laughs> So we just have a we have about ten fifteen minutes. I want to just a couple of other places I want to go. Sure. And, you know, it's interesting to me that you are have taken up this subject, and and maybe this is partly why it's gone so viral. Um, at, at precisely at a moment in which Americans, I think after a few generations of pretending like collectively we weren't that vulnerable, at least have have rediscovered. Right, geopolitical vulnerability, economic vulnerability. Um, you have this interest. So I think I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of how that manifests itself in our civic life. I mean, you have this really great sentence: "Feeling vulnerable, imperfect, and afraid is human. It's when we lose our capacity to hold space for these struggles that we become dangerous." And it seemed to me you know, that's one way to describe what is happening in our culture and our political life. We have no space to be honest about that, to be vulnerable, to be imperfect and afraid together, and it's become dangerous. No, we don't, you know, on a micro level as individuals, we're not our best selves in fear, and collectively, we're certainly not our best selves when we're in fear. And I think the national conversation... And I think this is true politically. I think it's true socially, economically. I think um, in the sector where we talk about religion and spirituality, I think the conversation has really centered on 
what are we supposed to be afraid of and who's to blame for it? Right, right. And I think we're I, – I, and I'm hoping it's not wishful thinking, but I, I'm thinking – We've grown weary of that. I think we're sick of being afraid. Right. At least that, right? I mean, maybe we don't actually know how to correct it and aren't diagnosing it, but are sick of it. I think we're sick of being afraid. I think we yeah. are. And I think there's a silent, a growing silent majority of people who are really kind of thinking at a very basic human level, I don't want to spend my days like this. I don't want to spend every ounce of energy I have ducking and weaving, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't know where we'll go next, but I really believe, you know, and with every fiber of my professional and personal self that we won't move forward without some honest conversations about vulnerability and shame, it's that if helpful. we are not mm-hmm. willing to talk about who we are when we're in fear and what we're capable of doing to each other when we're afraid. Right. I don't think we can move forward. I do like, again, that idea of hope as a function of struggle. It's, it's almost like, you know, it would be counterintuitive counterculturally to say we need to struggle with this honestly, vulnerably, to cultivate the hope that we need to figure out what's next. And I see it happening. I mean, I mm-hmm. see it just in the invitations that I receive to, you know, talk to people about it. And I think people are thinking, I don't know how to do this. And, I, you know, I want some help. I want some language. And yeah. I, so I see some movement. And I think. Yeah, I do too. I, I feel, ho- you know, I feel hopeful for it, uh, about it. I feel like. You know, I, I I always think about things in terms of family. You know, when I think about systems and organizations, and it's probably a, this is probably a function of my social work training to always think about systems. But I, you know, I think about families, I think about schools, I think about organizations, I think about community. Um, I think we're coming out of a period of awakening, maybe from a period of deep disengagement. Mm, mm-hmm. That and we're also sick of being disengaged. And we're sick of being disengaged. I think <laughs> yeah. we are. I think yeah. it's, hey, not caring mm-hmm. and choosing to live disappointed because that's easier than feeling disappointment yeah. has not paid off. You know, something else that runs through your work that I have to say it just so matches up in such a beautiful way with a question that I've asked myself over time about, you know, what are... Well, the way I've asked the question, which is a very kindred question to yours, is what are the qualities of what I, uh, you know, the genius in the art of living? It's kind of a phrase of Einstein's spiritual genius. Um, lives, uh, wholehearted lives would be another way to say it. Um, and, and that in my, 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 sub, my set that I've studied, I would say would be these people I've been in conversation with all these years. And it's, it's not just that... Um, that the things that go wrong for us are part of our wholeness, right? As you described, the, the vulnerability is what makes us, keeps us in. 
but also that what goes wrong for us is part of our gift to the world. It's what enables us to connect and be compassionate. And, I mean, that's a lovely way to think about, you know, the hard, possibly excruciating upside of the fact that so many of us are struggling and suffering right now. I agree 100%. And I think it points to maybe one of the, the, the deepest paradoxes about vulnerability, which is when I meet you, vulnerability is the very first thing I try to find in you. And it's the very last thing I want to show you in me. Mm. Because it's the glue that holds connection together. It's, it's when we look at each other and we have shared experiences, it, that's all about vulnerability. It's all about our, our kind of our common humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when we own our stories and we share our stories with one another and we see ourselves reflected back in the stories of people in our lives, we know we're not alone. And to me, that's the heart of wholeheartedness. It's the, it's the center of spirituality. To me, that's the nature of connection. To be able to see myself and, and hear myself and learn more about myself in the stories you tell about your experiences. I also see, I, I, I read you and I, I think about these ideas kind of in the middle of my life, you know, or well, what would early and earlier generations would have been the, the end, but right? So at 50, in my 50, early 50s, right? Yeah. And it seems to me also that... Um, an upside of aging is that, it, you know, when I look at people who I feel, when I see people aging badly in a sad way, it seems to me that the common denominator is they have not faced their demons and they just get smaller. It's like they just get eaten alive from the inside. Um, and that's about being vulnerable and, you know, claiming what's gone wrong and what the imperfection. Um, but there's a way in which getting older, especially kind of getting into your 40s, you know, kind of it, 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 it kind of pushes you to finally do this if you haven't done it. I mean, and that's, you know, that's in your story. And I just wonder if you think that, you know, this is something we can lean into almost as a gift. No, I think, I think what you're describing is what I have found as, as a very critical developmental milestone for us. You know, I think some people call it the midlife crisis. You know, I call it the midlife unraveling. Yeah. I think there is a place in time in our lives where we realize that growing up, when we felt pain, when we felt small, when we felt unseen – we constructed walls and moats and we protected ourselves and we shut down parts of ourselves. And then I think this this happens in midlife where we realize, oh God, to be the person we want to be, to be the partner, to be the parent, we have to take down everything we put up yeah. that was supposed to be keeping us safe. And that has not served us. And it has not served us. Right. What do you say? You say if you shut down vulnerability, you shut down all these other qualities that you long to have, right? Right. Because, you know, vulnerability is the center of things like You shut fear. down joy. You yes. minimize joy. And when you describe those people who 
you know, don't seem to be aging well, I think knowingly or unknowingly and probably more so unknowingly, Mm -hmm. they get to that place where they say, I have to make a choice whether to pull pull all this stuff down and be seen Mm -hmm. or keep going with all this up. And I think they keep going, carrying all this. And I think it is just so heavy. Yeah. And do you think that we have an intuition for this? I mean, is there any advice you can give? Let me say this. When I look at your story, okay, from the outside, mm-hmm. it seems to me that you were completely shocked that day at the Red Kitchen table when you discovered I was, vulnerability, yeah. right? Yeah. But on the other hand, if I look at it from this removed, privileged, removed perspective, it seems to me almost like you were heading towards it like a heat-seeking missile, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Like, you didn't want to go there, but you found exactly the way in, in your research, which was a departure from the other research, that took you there. Right. And you got there at a moment in your life when you realized you had, you know, it was a stark choice. I mean, do you think that we, do you, is your experience that, you know, that maybe we we all are kind of on that trajectory, whether we want to be or not? And, you know, how can we listen to that impulse or how can we follow it? What can we cultivate to get there? gracefully as possible. I don't think, I think grace will have a lot to do with it. I don't think gracefully will be a part of it, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, At least I don't see many people do it. I'm sure some people do it gracefully. Not anyone I know, but um, I think it's the long walk from what will people think to I am enough. I think it is recognizing that if courage is a value that we hold, as important, that vulnerability is the only way in and through. Um, And I think it starts by, you know, an openness to seeing ourselves and seeing kind of how we're protecting ourselves from vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I think that's where it started. I think for me at that Red Kitchen table, even for me today, I am the most successful doing, you know, this work and trying to be real and transparent and me and feel good in my own skin when I stay very aware of what kind of armor I'm throwing up or when I feel afraid. And I, you know, I think maybe the definitive piece of knowing that has helped me with this is that I was raised in a very kind of binary culture. If things were good or bad, you know, you were brave or you were afraid. You were courageous or you were fearful. And I think for me, one of the definitive moments in my life was realizing that most of us are brave and afraid in the exact same moment Mm -hmm. all day long. (laughs) All right. Well, I feel like we could talk for a couple more hours. And I, I hope that maybe some at some point we have the chance to do that. I would love that. Yeah. So you go off and have your conference call. Um, we're going to put this on the air pretty quickly, and we'll let you know. And let me just say also, we got all these we got all these questions coming in on Facebook and Twitter, and I didn't get to them. But I wonder if there might be a way to share those with you, or I don't know. Maybe we can talk about that. I would love that. Okay. Oh, I would love that. And maybe you could just choose some. Um, so you know, some of this stuff obviously came up. There was parenting stuff. There was workplace stuff we didn't talk about. Um, so maybe we can find a way to do that, like through our website or something like that. So, I would love it. Okay, great. I'm absolutely in. All right, we'll be in touch. Thanks, thank Krista. you. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye.